Let us now give God the opportunity to answer that prayer, to speak through His Word by turning in the Word to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. If you're visiting or you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, I would encourage you to use the blue Bible provided in the pew pocket in front of you. And you'll be able to find the text, I presume, on page 2. Genesis chapter 2. Now, for the sake of time and so that we can better follow this narrative that proceeds from Genesis 2, 4 to verse 25, I'm simply going to read for us verse 4, and then I will read the remainder of the text throughout the sermon this morning. Let's begin at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It might be the most famous famous opening in all of modern literature. It comes from Charles Dickens. The book is no stranger to you, A Tale of Two Cities. Do you remember the opening lines? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Now, you may not remember the the rest, but hang with me. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going to heaven. We were all going the other way. A fundamental study paradox. Dickens would unfold his tale on the back of two cities, London and Paris, two men, Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton. But I think the reason why those lines still stick with us even to this day is because they so aptly and beautifully Describe the disparity, ambiguity of our own world. Let me reframe that as a question. How can this world that we live in be at the same time so good and so bad? I think sometimes that the soundtrack of life here, really could be Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. You ever feel that? It's like it's just kind of playing from the clouds somewhere. I'm with them. Blue skies, white clouds, red roses blooming for me and you. It gets personal. It seems so ideal. And yet... (laughs) At the same time, I think that the soundtrack of the world would better resemble like the heavy metal music of my teenage years. You know those songs that lament of like the world being a vampire and everyone's a rat in a cage? Like that, that kind of hard, dark soundtrack of life. You feel this inconsistency, don't you? On the one hand, there's great food and scenic views and pleasant memories and experiences. I mean, after all, don't we live in the happiest and healthiest city in the world for three years running? I mean, isn't it really a wonderful world here in Naples? And at the same time, at the same time, even this very week, as we were enjoying this creation. There is pain, and there is death, and there is suffering, and there is conflict. Just look in Christchurch, New Zealand this morning. Same time, same place. Forget the world for a moment. Let's zoom in to this very congregation. Right now, in this moment, at any given moment, we together have experienced in the last week 
births and or deaths, profits and or losses, happiness and or hopelessness, delight and or despair, companionship and or loneliness. Even in here. So why does it seem so good and so bad at the same time? And what are we supposed to do about it? This is what the next section of Genesis will begin to answer. So far, we've established a very good premise, at least from the universal perspective. We've seen from 1-1 to 2-3 that God, the Creator King, created a good world with mankind at the top of it. It's an awesome start. It, it tells you the, the idyllic scene of creation, but you'll notice the reason why I read verse 4, Moses will begin to transition into a new phase of the book. When you see, typically, almost every time, but not every time, these are the generations of, you're, you're reaching a new organizational feature in the book. It's almost like a new chapter. We have chapter headings. Moses divided up this book, which is actually five books, but this first part of it, Genesis, by this little phrase. These are the generations of. So he's moving from the way the world was into the way the world is, and we all know it's not blue skies and rainbows. And so as he transitions here, you're going to need to notice that he gets from this universal view, what I would call the satellite view of things, to the dashboard view. Everything from this point forward will be from almost the first person. You're going to see it through the eyes of the individuals. God gave us his plan from up above in chapter 1-1 all the way to 2-3. Now it's going to get personal. Now we're going to see the same story in part told from our perspective. And we know, at least from our own vantage point, Things aren't as great as they seem in chapter 1. So how does it get there? What do we do about it? The next chapter goes technically from chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations of, all the way through the end of chapter 2, through the end of chapter 3, through the end of chapter 4. If I were to give this chapter of Genesis a title, it would just simply be Paradise Gained and Paradise Gone. Today we're looking at paradise gained. We don't have enough time to cover the entire story, but I do want you to grasp. Now it's going to provide a stunning contrast to what's going to come in the weeks ahead, but hear me well, please. The first thing you need to know about the God of the Bible and his designs towards you, the first thing at the very beginning is that he is good and he longs for you to enjoy a good life. So often the story of the Old Testament gets mired in people's minds because they jump into all the things that they don't like about the Old Testament. They haven't started in the very beginning where God intends for you to start. There's a certain order in which you need to understand God. He has revealed himself in a certain way. And the anchor rests in God's goodness toward us. And in this particular chapter, this little part of the story that I title paradise gained. We're going to see three good gifts that God has given to his creation. Now, I'm not going to tell you what they are to begin with. I want to see if you can identify them as we walk through the text, but I will help you out with this. The first gift is in verses 4 through 14. The second gift is in verses 15 through 17. The third gift is in verses 18 through 24. So, looking at verses 4 through 14, what does this covenant creator God give to us? Look at verse 4 again. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Notice how God introduces himself here. Do you see in your text how, for the first time, we never saw this in chapter 1, the word God isn't the only word that's used. Now we have, <clears throat> excuse me, the word Lord God, Lord in all caps. We know, those of us who have been at this church for a while, we say this often, Lord in all caps is God's special personal covenant name. 
Here, God is not just showing himself as the mighty creator, but he is actually going to tie together mighty creator with covenant God. He is the God of Israel. He is the God of his chosen people. And all through this text, all through the story, it's amazing, creator God, or excuse me, covenant creator, Lord God, is going to be used exclusively, except for one part in chapter 3, and we'll see that next week. But you see it there, your eyes can kind of follow through the text and see those cats just sticking up all throughout. So God is is presenting himself here. He's presenting creation from this new vantage point. He's presenting it from the angle of man. He wants you also to understand that this is a personal God, not just a powerful God. And now notice what this personal God does for his creation. Verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, there's a lot of introductory material there. The main verb, the main idea is that God created man, and he puts him in a special place. But notice how Moses teases out the context. He's wanting the the reader to imagine a, a land with undeveloped opportunity. I mean, actually, he sees it as a place of fantastic opportunity. It is a place of perfect opportunity. Notice, there's no bush of the field in the land. There's no small plant that had sprung up. These are particularly plants that need to be cultivated. So God created a good world. He created a complete world, but he created it with opportunity for expansion. They've got a rule over something. They've got something they need to cultivate. And for the agrarian, ancient Near Eastern mind, this sounds like an amazing prospect because it's wide open. Not only is it wide open, even before there was ever rain, the earth was being watered from beneath. It says that a mist rose up from the ground. Probably the better way to understand that is like a subterranean river. It means literally a gushing was coming up from the ground. There was abundant resources there. It just needed somebody to show up and organize it, and then all of a sudden it would explode with life. Now, this is an amazing prospect. I think all of us love the idea of the perfect job. I don't know what your dream job is, but for some ladies, it could be like an old house that needs to be restored, or for some men, it could be just the perfect investment opportunity, and it seems like things are on the up, or it could be an amazing office space. All of us know what a good job would look like and a bad job would look like. I would only give you the opposite contrast of Mike Rowe's dirty jobs, (laughs) and we certainly know what bad ones are. But we also know what good ones are. He's presenting here a great opportunity. Man would have the opportunity to come and step into this place that is loaded with potential. And he does that. He puts them exactly in it. Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The whole point is leading up to the fact that God is going to specially create man and put him in this garden. Notice how he created him in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now this is amazing because he is somewhere, the man is going to be created somewhere suspended between earth and heaven. There's going to be an earthy part of him showing that he's not divine, And yet there still will be a spiritual part of him. God breathes into him, and he's the one that causes life out of this inanimate object. This is a special creation by God. You and I have been specially created by him. There is a spiritual part of us. There is a earthly part of us. But he's already emphasized that in chapter 1. What is he emphasizing here? That he made the man of the earth, and then he placed him in the earth in this garden. And notice how he describes it. A garden in Eden. Now, for those of you who grew up in Sunday school, notice that at least here, it doesn't say a garden of Eden. 
It is a garden in Eden. So Eden is the larger territory. There seems to be some geographical locale that the original readers would have been familiar with, and I'm not going to take the time to try to figure it out, even though there are some interesting theories. But it's a real place, but it's a place of pleasure. My oldest daughter is named Eden. The reason why I chose that name is because it means delight, pleasure, luxury. It's a garden characterized by pleasure. Even the word garden is a little misconceived in our own minds because we think of garden and we think of a vegetable garden. Uh, The Hebrew word could even be orchard. So here we have this park, if you want to use a more American term, this beautiful park that's laid out for man with trees and with plants, one that he can cultivate. It's in the land of pleasure, but it's a garden specially created by God. So God made the whole world in days one through six, but on day six, he does another special act of creation and puts man in the best possible scenario. Notice verse 9, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, this is amazing. He places him in this garden. It is a place of pleasure, not just in name, but in actuality. I love the, the phrase, every tree that is good for sight and pleasant for food. God didn't just create a functional world. He created a beautiful one. I mean, if you've ever seen the towering redwoods in Northern California or the the mighty sequoias or even in my own home state, I love those gnarled dogwood trees with the little white blooms this time of year. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's just something to look at. And God said he created it so that your eyes would enjoy it. And they would produce fruit so that it would be good to you. Not just good for you. Big difference between the two, right? (laughs) He says that it's good, good to you and good for you. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but have you ever thought about the beauty of God creating us with taste buds? It could have just been all about the nourishment, and yet he put them in a place where they would actually enjoy it. So the, the succulent fruit and those great vegetables that would be available to them in that place was just astonishing. And then we get an interesting note at the end of verse 9. See it there in your Bible? The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's rather ominous. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life. What's that all about? You will learn momentarily. But notice how he keeps talking about the pleasure of the place. It's not only pleasurable, but it's full of precious stones and jewels. Look at verse 10. This is an interesting feature. A river flowed out of Eden, not into it, but out of it. So it was springing up from under the ground, out of Eden, to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers, or four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pashan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. Notice this, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good, it is pure. Delium and onyx stone are there. These are interesting stones, we'll keep in mind. Verse 13, the name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. Now notice, this isn't just a place of pleasure, but it is an actual place. I know some people would try to interpret this narrative as some type of myth, but if it's a myth, you're not concerned with naming the actual rivers. You're not using geographical indicators like the east. You're not talking about specific names of lands. This was a real place, but it was a precious place. Number one, it's rivers. I mean, we're surrounded by water here, so it's not that big a deal to us. But do you remember the original context? You've got some dusty and dry people standing on the banks of Moab. They've seen all the dirt that they ever want to see. They know what it's like to literally be threatened from thirst. And they hear a picture of a land that's filled with rivers. Actually, the source of the river is the place. I mean, they would live at its source, Adam and Eve. What kind of opportunity is that? It's amazing. 
an interesting parallel as you continue to read through the Bible that the city of God is constantly associated with a river, a place of life. Psalm 46 points to this. We read about it in Revelation chapter 21. There was a river of life that was there. It, It is a place of abundant resource. But it's also a place of precious resources like gold and onyx and delium. Now, those are precious stones. Anybody would have recognized that. Uh, this is a beautiful place. He didn't have to like bejewel this thing, and yet he does it so that they would enjoy it. But there's something else going on here. For the reader of the Old Testament and anyone looking back over the progress of Revelation, they would begin to understand as they see this place, gold, onyx, Delium, where else do we hear of these things? Well, those things are specifically mentioned in the construction of the tabernacle, God's special place of residence. Those things are also mentioned in the temple, God's special place of residence. And what did we read in Revelation chapter 21? That there would be gold and precious stones in God's special place of residence. Anybody knows that if it's a place where the king will dwell, it will be fabulous. And God creates a fabulous world for them to oversee. A place not only for their pleasure, but a place for their praise. He would intend for them to actually maintain his throne room. This would be their special place of residence near him, enjoying fellowship with him. And so this is a beautiful image. In what way, what does our creator, covenant, God give to us in verses 4 through 14? He gave us, to say it simply, a happy place. He gave us a happy place. This world was for our enjoyment. And I want to load ways we can better enjoy God's world at the end, but just get it. See the picture for a moment. It is a special place of pleasure intended for us to enjoy. That is a good God. But He not only gave them a happy place. Verses 15 through 17 will describe another gift in the text. Look at the verses. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, what is God giving here? Well, you look at verse 15, and it's clear He's giving them some instruction or some type of command or responsibility. It says that the Lord God, the covenant creator, Yahweh Elohim, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work. To work it and to keep it. Now, this, I'm not the first one to ever make this observation, but it bears repeating that work, friends, is not the curse. Sometimes we think that Eden was just the place of laziness and leisure. God actually gave man a job to do from the very beginning. Genesis 3 will portray the frustration of work. Everybody can say amen to that. But work itself is not part of the curse. It's part of the created mandate of God. He intended for you to cultivate, to create, to represent Him in this world in some way. And the two main verbs here, cultivate, keep. Cultivate is the idea of making something better. Keep is the idea of protecting. Uh, Let me use some sports terminology for a moment that would be familiar with us all. He intended for them to play offense and defense. He wanted them to advance something, and he wanted them to protect something. And this, it was going to be specifically this garden, the expansion of life. They were supposed to make this world even better. God left it with opportunity on the table for them to develop. It's an amazing prospect. But something else is interesting. Remember, the Pentateuch is a book. It goes from Genesis to Deuteronomy. These same two verbs, cultivate and keep will be used on two different occasions in the book of Numbers. 
Specifically, Numbers 3, 7, and 8. Numbers 8, verses 5 and 6. To describe the work of the priest, guess where? In the tabernacle. It seems that man is doing more than work. It seems that God is presenting him not just with the capacity to do something with his hands, but to actually worship. He is a worship worker. He is a priest worker. He is to represent God in a spiritual way on this planet, in this special sanctuary. It is an amazing thought. Work would be a sacred privilege by which man could represent God. We were made for that. I just read an interesting article in Christianity Today last week, two weeks ago, and I think you'd find it fascinating. It's about retirement. There's even ads, by the way, for retirement places in Fort Myers. Christianity Today, National Magazine. We're getting some FaceTime. In the article, they begin to argue that the vision of retirement, at least as we know it today, wasn't first posited until the 1940s and 50s. Like most people never envisioned a time in which they would stop working. And yet the idea was sold, and America bought it. And they bought it hard. And so as the retirement generations have continued for years, you know what sociologists are finding? That people, once they retire, often find themselves unfulfilled. They miss the purpose and the significance and the meaning that came with work. Some of you are shaking your heads. You you know this feeling It is because God gave us something to do. Does it always have to be a job with a salary? No. But at some point, you get there in your own vacation times even, you get to the end and you're just like, I'm ready to get back to a routine. (laughs) This is what God made us for. We never, I don't care what age you are, we never outgrow or age out of our response. Dare I say it? Well, in this world, Dare I say it, God has given us purpose. He's not only given us a happy place, but He has given us a holy purpose. A holy purpose. It is a holy purpose because notice the stipulations that are tied to it in verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Now notice this, this is the first command specifically you may surely eat of every tree of the garden now people think of god's commands as a bad thing you know what god's first strict command here i mean he gave a responsibility but a thou shalt thou shalt eat enjoy every tree in the garden everything in there it is yours Notice the goodness of God's law here. And all he says is he gives one prohibition. It is very simple. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now let me be very clear about something. People often wonder, so what was this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Somebody told me the other day it was a fig tree. Was that, it was one of you. I don't know who it was. I don't know how you got that. I don't know that it was a fig tree. I don't know that it was a pear plum tree. This is what I grew up thinking. You know those little flashcards in Sunday school with pictures? They always made it look like the shape of a pear, but it was the color of a plum, and it just looked so good. (laughs) For those of you who try to read satanic symbols into everything, it is not the apple symbol. It was not an apple. It was not a fig tree. We don't know what it was. There was nothing magical about the fruit. The point of this whole exercise was that man would be given the opportunity to represent God by relying on him or by relying on self. Notice what the tree is named. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you remember that Hebrew poetic term merism that I discussed a few weeks ago? Opposites, describing totality, heavenly earth mean everything. What do we have here? In the intellectual moral realm, you have the tree of the knowledge of good on the one hand and evil on the other. 
He's saying that this would be, you can have a source for morality and understanding apart from me, or you could just continue to rely on me in everything that I've already provided for you. That was the option that was presented to man in the garden. Why God would ever present them with that option, I don't know. But in some ways, I do know. Because it makes total sense that they'd at least have some opportunity to choose something. And so here, in this instance, they do choose. Now, man's capacity to choose is going to be handicapped to the point beyond repair, beyond after this. But right now, in this moment, they choose. And so they have this capacity. They have this opportunity. They get to live out and fulfill the significant purpose with so much positivity, only one prohibition, and we see the goodness of God once more. A good God gifts his creation with a holy purpose, some meaning, some significance. So let's take some inventory as we transition into this third gift. What do we have so far? We've got a happy place. That's amazing. We've got a holy purpose. But if you've got a place to live and you've got a thing to do, how amazing is it to do it by yourself? So God tries to meet another need here. What does the creator covenant God give in verses 18 through 25? Notice how it begins in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. If you're reading the story straight through, is that not a stunning statement? Six times in a row we have heard, It was good. It was good. It was good, it was good, it was good. And we even got, it was very good. But in the chronology of things, we haven't heard very good yet. Right now, all we've got is it was good, over and over and over again. And somewhere in the middle of day six, God looks at everything that he's done, and he says, it's not good. It's not good. Even though there is a happy place, even though there is a holy purpose, it is still not good. Why? Because man's alone. So God decides to remedy this. He says, I will make him a helper fit for him. So it seems like man needs some type of a a partner. There Notice the term helper. Helper means one who comes alongside and contributes. This isn't a demeaning term, by the way. This is the same term that's used of God throughout the Psalms to talk about him helping his people. The term helper just simply means that man, in and of himself, can't get the job done. And so, God intended for someone else to come alongside him in his primary responsibility to answer for these commands he's just been given and to help him and assist him in that. So there still is a sense of authority because the command is given to the man specifically. But there's also a sense of insufficiency apart from the woman. It would take both man and woman together to accomplish this good plan of God. Now, notice that as he's exposing this this need, he's rehearsing exactly what man would need, and he says he needs a helper fit for him. That phrase will be repeated twice. The the word fit for him could sound very chauvinistic, like for him, like it's for his fulfillment or his completion, like the purpose. The Hebrew literally means corresponding to him, opposite of him. It is someone who would fit the missing puzzle piece, if you will, if I modernize it. It is one that is appropriate. It is one that fits. It is one Here's our word that complements him. Someone that complements him. You remember that from from math class? There's supplementary equations and complementary equations. Supplementary means you're just adding something. Complement means that you complete it. You finish it off. This would be how God finished off the created order. Think about this. The difference between not good and very good was the creation of woman. What a high honor. 
this ancient Near Eastern, what many people call patriarchal text, gives to the woman. She is the crowning jewel of creation. If mankind overall is, she is the one that finishes the deal. It is an amazing thing. And so the need for partnership is rehearsed, but then it is revealed. God is going to help the man understand his need. Notice what happens in verse 18. It says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. We remember that, that had already happened in days four, excuse me, days five and the earlier part of day six. But notice what happens here. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now, here man is given the capacity to exercise some dominion and sovereignty, right? What was God, the creator king, doing in chapter 1? He was building stuff. He was naming it. He was exercising authority over it. Now, God brings it to the man and says, all right, you name it. Now, for us, naming doesn't mean that much. I mean, we name our children. It does imply ownership, but The name of the kid doesn't really mean that much. (laughs) It can change. But in an Old Testament context, context, to name something actually implied its design, its purpose, its destiny. That's why Jesus, being named Jesus, was such a big deal in the New Testament. He will be called Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from his sins. Or Abram, his name being changed to Abraham. Jacob, trickster, being changed to Israel, prince of God. Naming was not just identifying, but it was designating. And so man is given this authority to identify and to designate how these animals would function and serve. And God parades every one of them, at least all of the the birds and all of the land animals in front of him. And notice what, how God delegates. Good principle, by the way, for those of you who are in business, if you give something away, notice this. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. <laughs> he trusted him with the responsibility. He actually let him do it. And it says in verse 20, The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. Remember that phrase? So, the Lord God, the covenant creator, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, or from his side, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God covenant creator had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man i love the narrative here you see how it's building man has identified every one of these animals and he has noted how they all have compliments male and female And he's noted how they all have some type of purpose or design. And yet God has given him a purpose. God has given him a task. And yet he still feels incomplete. He looks at all these. He knows he needs help. He sees every one of these animals. And he's he's got it. This isn't it. What am I going to do? So God fixes it. He fixes it by putting asleep. by, By taking from his side and creating woman. I love the end of verse 22. The rib that he had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and notice this, he brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He is delighted. Notice that that phrase, at last, finally. I think that's where Etta James must have got the words from. His love had come along. God had actually brought him exactly what he needed, what he was looking for. And notice what he says. He says, it's bone of my bones. I mean, this is the ultimate incompatibility. We talk about being cut from the same cloth or birds of a feather. It doesn't get any closer than bone of my bone. We are sharing in this together and she comes from his side and the words of Matthew Henry still ring solid today as he comments on this text 
He reminds us that woman was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. Isn't that beautiful? You talk about God giving good gifts. What an amazing gift that God would put people together in this way, male and female, totally compatible, complementary. And notice Moses' divine interjection. Therefore, how he interjects a little commentary here in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother Hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is a commentary. Moses wanted those ancient Near Eastern readers to get the fact that God had designed this marriage thing from the very beginning. What was happening here was to be the pattern for all of the human creation thereafter. It is not hard to figure out exactly what's going on in this text or these specific instructions of marriage. Many people often ask, of what does marriage consist? I think of, you know, the typical 20-something who's trying to figure out some way to be able to fornicate and still do so and not feel bad. They're like, well, we're married in our hearts. What is marriage? How did you get to define it? God defines marriage here, and this is the way that he defines it. Leaving, cleaving, weaving. There is a leaving, there is a formal break from your closest associations. In the ancient Near Eastern context, parents were second to God, as they still should be today, but they actually took it seriously, like to the point of stoning people if they rebelled against them. And yet here he's going to say, forsake, forsake your parents. Now, that doesn't mean that you never talk to them again. I mean, clearly, they would have societal obligations. But it means that there's a new allegiance. The allegiance used to be to your mom and dad. Now, the allegiance is going to be to this one that you partner yourself with. You forsake, you leave, and then you cleave. The word is used in a religious sense throughout the Old Testament when someone talks about clinging to God. It is the language of covenant commitment. You want to know what marriage is, biblically speaking, straight here from Genesis 2? It is a covenant. It is a relational agreement for life to represent God. That's why, forgive me for stepping into political waters for a moment, but that's why I don't get so up in arms about homosexuality and marriage, because whatever they're doing, it's not marriage. They may go steady and live in the same house, but the truth of the matter is it's not a covenant before God to represent Him because God prescribed it so that it would be one man and one woman for one lifetime. It is monogamous, and I need to say this because of our own day and age, it is heterosexual. There was a male and there was a female, and God put them together. So, friends, we're we're not on the periphery here. This is mainstream, central Bible teaching. So, marriage consists of leaving, it consists of cleaving, and it consists of what I'm calling weaving or becoming one. From that point forward, those people would be looked at by God as one person. That is a phenomenal undertaking. That is a huge deal. One person. That's why divorce is looked upon so unfavorably. And I'm not going to pour a guilt trip on anyone who's been divorced in the room because it's probably half of you. But I will say, and you know from your experience, that God's good plan is one man, one woman, one lifetime. That's why it says Jesus, interpreting the same text in Mark chapter 10, would say, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. God put it together. He views them as one, and this 
according to God, is a good gift. Now we go back to chapter 1, verse 31, and he will say it is very good. Notice how they first exist, though. Because here's where your marriage and mine are different than this one. Verse 25 of chapter 2, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So often people, when they're trying to use this text for their wedding vows, they're like, hey, can you please not read verse 25? That's kind of embarrassing. I understand it. It is not embarrassing. I'm not advocating some form of a nudist colony. But I am saying that God's design from the very beginning was amazing. It was freedom from guilt. They didn't have anything to hide. That's probably the best way to explain what's there in verse 25. God was the one who designed clothes. He was the first fashion designer. He gave it to them because they needed to cover up because they felt bad. You know how it is, right? When you do something that you regret or something that you're ashamed of, you typically cover up, you hide, you want to be away from people. And I'm no psychologist, but I know any day of the week when somebody's talking to me and their hands are in front of their face, something's up. But when we're confident, we're open. It's like those one-year-old babies, you know, that will run around butt naked. They don't know anything to be ashamed of. They didn't have anything to be ashamed of. At this point in creation, this is a beautiful verse, at this point in creation there was nothing to hide because things were right between God and man, things were right between man and woman, things were right between man and woman and creation. It is a beautiful picture. And if you want out of your marriage, I imagine it wasn't like this one. I get it. But that brings us to the, the best way to utilize this gift. What is it? What is this third gift? It is a healthy partnership. A healthy partnership. So, so how do we use it? Let me just give some real basic advice here about this rather tenuous subject. First, some of you may be seeking to get into this thing. You're like, I like this plan, sounds good to me, uh, I want in. If you're single and you want to be in on this plan, uh, my simple admonition for you would be to examine, examine, examine who it is you want to do this with. Basic guidelines, uh, they need to be of the opposite sex, check. All right, and then the second thing, they need to be one who is bought into representing God. So if their basic job was to work together to represent the Lord by ruling over his creation, your basic understanding is, all right, are they of the opposite sex, and do they want to represent God together with me? It's not that they are a certain height, or that they have a certain educational background, or they meet a certain personality profile. I hate to sound simplistic, but the truth of the matter is, People are really struggling to get married these days because they've overcomplicated the situation. Now, the parents in the room are going to hate this, but I was just going to say, I got married when I was 20. It wasn't that hard. Beautiful female. Somebody loves Jesus. It's laughing. That is the plan. Examine. You need to examine God's plan. Don't overcomplicate it. Some of you are seeking to get in, but that's not all. Some of you are already in. If you're already in this, I understand that you may not be living in Genesis 2.25 right now, but here's the implicit command for you. Enjoy this partnership. It doesn't last forever. It is for your pleasure. It is for your joy. The physical nature of the relationship, yes, is for your joy. The procreation of children, that is a joy. The, the social aspect, like having someone to talk to and listen to you as you're endeavoring to represent the Lord, that, that is a privilege, that is a gift. And then there's a the spiritual aspect, the fact that they complement you. The reason why, by the way, you probably don't get along is because you're different. And different for a reason. And you've got to learn to embrace those differences. God intends for all of his creatures to enjoy this relationship if it is for them. Don't worry, I'm not going to leave it here. Because I realize that some of you are not seeking to get in or already in. Some of you are seeking to get out. 
Here's my admonition to you this morning, pastorally, endure. What God has put together, let no man put asunder. Whatever it is that you're trying to escape, if that's what you're feeling right now, is the very thing that God is trying to change in your heart in this moment. And you don't cut and run. There are provisions for the cut. And those will be discussed on a different day. But the emphasis of the New Testament interpretation of this text is that you hang in there. Endure. And then for those of you who are already out. Maybe you're divorced. Maybe you're widowed. Or maybe you're like, this just isn't for me. I don't have any desire to be married. That's totally okay. What you need to understand is that a good God has created both male and female so that we could work together for the accomplishing of His purposes. That's the big point. The natural primary way that He does this is through partnership and marriage. But the Scriptures will reveal that He will work outside of that as well. You could still enjoy the male-female social-spiritual relationship apart from marriage. Didn't our Lord? The Lord Jesus Christ was never married on this earth. Was He in some way lacking? He had companionship. He had camaraderie, not only of other men, but the Bible speaks to other women participating in His ministry as well. So if you're already out, I don't want you to think that you're just somehow like missing for the rest of your life out on God's plan. That you're somehow spiritually handicapped. You still have everything you need in Jesus. He is the marriage partner for those who have covenanted together with Him. Like, I still feel lonely even though I've got Jesus. Well, notice, He is the head and His church is the body. If you do feel lonely, you feel like you're missing something, you feel like you're lacking God intends for you legitimately to find that complementarian relationship with other brothers and sisters in a local church just like this one. Friends, it isn't just the responsibility, by the way, of the single to to find this relationship with other men and women in the church. It is the responsibility of other men and women in the church to minister to those who are not enjoying the same relationship. If you've ever had to eat lunch alone, that was a reminder from God Almighty that somebody does that probably every day. We are put in partnership now as a church to represent Him. Primarily, this is talking about marriage. But secondarily, it is talking about male and female relationships with Christians and with non-Christians, but its primary expression in this sense being found in a church. And this is very good. It's very good. These healthy partnerships. So what went wrong? Well, that's next week. But in the meantime, the whole world at one time, went right. And that means something. It means something for every one of us in this room. What does it mean practically? I'll give you two things. The first would be, you need to enjoy the echoes of Eden. Enjoy the echoes of Eden. Sure, we're not living in the land of pure delight. But those good things things still echo forward into creation today. Enjoy the place. Some people think that spirituality is like platonic. Like it just means to distance yourself from everything physical, corporal. God made a very physical, tangible, touchable, tasteable world. And He actually intends for you to enjoy it knowing that that was His good gift to you. Enjoy. Maybe the most practical thing some of you could do this afternoon is go for a walk and just take it in because God made that. He made it for you. He made it for you to enjoy. So it affects your your view of God, your enjoyment of this world. You need to enjoy the place. 
The second thing under this echoes of Eden that I would give to you, you need to embrace your responsibility. For for those of you who are living these unbridled lives of self-centered pleasure, life is all about making you happy. That's an empty life. You want significance. You want meaning. You want purpose. Embrace God's plan to represent Him wherever you are. It may be just stamping papers at work. It may be leading a Fortune 500 company. Or anywhere in between, you have the capacity, the opportunity to represent God to the world in whatever it is that you're doing. So in retirement or out of retirement, in the home or in the office, buy in. This is the purpose, the reason for which God has made you. Embrace that responsibility. It is not bad, friends. It is good. It is very good. So we enjoy the echoes of Eden by enjoying this world, this place, embracing this responsibility, and finally, engaging in partnerships. You are limiting yourself from God's good world if you are a loner. We live in a hyper-individualistic world where because of people's phones, they think that they can actually do all of life without anyone else. You could literally live out of your house for the rest of your life and never come out and talk to anyone else again. That's the way things are set up these days. And some of you, if you could, you would. But let me tell you what's happening. You are limiting yourself. You are restricting God's good gift to you. He intends for you to do this together. And yes, Single people, get married if you have the desire, but I'm speaking more broadly. Enjoy relationships with others, not just guys with other guys and girls with other girls. We need each other. So we need to look back and enjoy the echoes of Eden. We also need to look forward and anticipate the arrival of the Eden to come. But this, this world is good, but... It's bad. I, I can't help but think of, of those beautiful lines in mere Christianity. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, is that I was made for a different world. Friends, we can try to enjoy the echoes all we want. But the real thing is gone. The original is not there anymore. But something even more real is yet to come. That's what Revelation 21 was all about. God intends for us to actually find joy and hope, not just in this created world, because it will not forever be here. He intends for us to find it in the world to come. And hear me well, the only way you will ever enjoy that world is to enter through Jesus Christ, God's Son. He's the one that said, I go to prepare what? a place for you. He is the one that said, I am what? The way. The way to what? The way back to Eden. The way back to the worshipful presence of God. The way back to His throne room. He made that possible by living the righteous life that Adam never could live. And then dying the death that Adam and his progeny deserved to die. And then rising again to give the capacity for eternal life to all who would ever believe in Him. Wrath of God satisfied, righteousness of Christ imparted, heaven gained. It's paradise. That's the hope that God gives us. And so I I can't just positive think my way through this world. It is inescapably bad. And the older we get and the more friends die and the less functional this body becomes, the more we long for that place. And so we pray.
Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us all in here to enjoy your good world and to anticipate the world to come. May we do both. And Lord, there are some in here who cannot enjoy this world. They cannot anticipate the world to come because they have yet to repent or turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. And I pray that you'd work in their heart today. Or if they're confused about that, they want to know what it means to be able to enjoy this good world that you've created or the world to come. Or move them to speak with one of our members or to one of the pastors before they go so that they too could receive Christ and the place that He promises. Or make us a happy people in light of your good gifts to us. In Jesus' name, amen.